Today we're going to be in Psalm 95. If you look in front of you, there may be uh, a Bible someplace in the chair in front of you. You can reach down and grab that. It's page 499 in that Bible, Psalm 95. You can also turn on your Bible if you want to do that. But uh, let's, let's take this opportunity to hear God's Word. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep in his hand. And so today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, on the day at Manasseh, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Father, I thank you that, I thank you on the cross that Jesus said, it's finished. The ultimate word of rest to declare over our lives before even life began for us, you declared, Lord Jesus, through your work in your life, your death, your resurrection, that the ultimate work, it's complete. And so when we place our faith in you, Lord Jesus, you do not count our sins against us. It's not accredited to our account. Instead, when the Father sees us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so as we come before you and, and study your word, uh, Lord, you don't see, though you know the mistakes of this week, you do not accept us according to what we've done, but rather according to what Jesus has done, and in that we stand complete. And so, Lord, may the rest that we have in Christ lead us to wrestle with you, Father, in your word, so that we might understand your truth, and because of that, Lord, know you more fully and live for you completely. Father, we love you. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Hey, it's good to see you here. Hey, let me tell you what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, next Sunday, do not miss next Sunday, because Brian Petrie, our own youth pastor, is going to be preaching his first sermon here, I think, at Bergen Park. Psalm 51. Where is that guy? Is he here? See, that's how busy he is. 
Uh, after that, on uh, August 12th, uh, one of our missionaries from France, the Haddads, Jonah Haddad, is going to be here. And that's going to be a great opportunity. If you haven't had a chance to get to know him, he'll be here actually, I think, for like three Sundays. And so a great opportunity. When you walk out to over on the left side, you'll see this big picture, and that's the Haddads. And so you'll recognize him before he gets here. Uh, and then on August 19th, uh, we're going to have a group that's coming to Bergen Park called Adams Road. If you don't know the story of Adams Road, it begins with a guy named uh, John Wilder, and he came to faith. He was a missionary, but he was a Mormon missionary, and he was on his mission, and one of the pastors that he encountered told him to read the Gospel of John, and as he read the Gospel of John, he met with Jesus, he heard the Gospel, gave his life to Christ. Later on, his brother Matt came to faith. His mother, who was actually a professor at BYU, came to faith. His father came to faith. And uh, what, what's going to happen on that day is there's a group of them. They're going to be here with us. They're going to share their stories, their testimonies, how God has really spoken to them. So that's August 19th. So we got a lot to look forward to in the month of August. So guys, it's good to see you. Hey, today as we jump into Psalm 95, and as we look at these words and, and describe really and understand what the psalmist is describing, it's a description in Psalm 95 of worship. This is kind of the classic psalm. If you're in seminary, you go to a Bible class, or if you're studying about worship, likely they're going to start with Psalm 95 because it lays out in really a, a simple way the complete picture of what it means to worship. And what we're going to do is two things. First of all, we're going to answer the question, what is worship? And then from this, ask the question, how do we do that? So what is worship? And then second, how do we actually how do we actually do that? Now, when we talk about what worship is, we're going to discover two things. First of all, worship engages the entire body. Worship engages the entire person. It's not just about the voice. It's not just about the mind. It's not just about the emotions or the decisions we make. Instead, when you're really truly worshiping, true worship engages the entire person. And you're going to see that as true when you read stories in the Bible when someone encounters God, they don't encounter God intellectually. <laughs> they don't just encounter God emotionally or volitionally in the decisions they make. Rather, when God shows up, he encapsulates and captivates the entirety of that person. They worship God with their emotions, their mind, and their will. So what is worship? First of all, we're going to see that it engages the entire person. But then second, a definition of worship is to ascribe to God ultimate value. It's ascribing to God ultimate value that when you walked in this morning, something in your heart had ultimate value. Now, hopefully what happened is as we began to sing, you ascribed from whatever your heart was set on. Maybe it's a problem you're dealing with this week. It could be just something that you're thinking through. You transitioned from whatever was in your heart or on your mind, and you began to focus on God. Because, see, worship is ascribing to God ultimate value. So let's pick up these two ideas. So let's jump back into the passage in verses 1 and 2 and look at the language that he describes. What kind of language, what kind of action do we see in verses 1 and 2 when he says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And notice, come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let, him, let us make a joyful noise to him, verse 2, with songs of praise. You know, this is the, the language of the emotions. 
sing for joy. Come with thanksgiving. Come not to get thanksgiving, but rather bring it with you. If you read Psalm uh, starting in 120, 121, 122, they're all called the Psalms of Ascent. Because see, Jerusalem, the temple was actually on a hill. And so what you would do is you prepared for Sunday morning or actually Saturday on the Sabbath. You would sing these songs. Uh, You would work up your emotions. You'd shout for joy. You'd be with all these people that are coming into the temple to worship God. Meaning the first thing you would do is engage your emotions. Not because you necessarily felt emotional, but you were preparing yourself to meet with God. And could you imagine all those people around you singing for joy? You know, if I was bored, I'd probably get a little excited. If I was tired, I'd probably start to wake up. Because see, sometimes there's some of you that are easy, you easily get there. We don't even need to ask you to get there. You know, they're just naturally expressive. It comes out easy. Now, some of us, we need maybe three cups of coffee before we can ever get there. But what happens is when we come with emotion, it wakes the rest of us up. And we begin to express and experience that God is here. First, he engages the emotions. But you'll notice what happens in verse 6. It's not the language of the emotion. Rather, it's the language of reflection. Because he says in verse 6 and 7, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are his people, the sheep in his hand. Now, notice he says he is not just a God, he is our God. And who are we? We're like the sheep in his hand. And therefore, what do we do? We worship and bow down. We kneel. See, this is the language of the volition. I'm making a decision. I'm responding in a physical way to engage my body in the worship of God. So we have the emotions keyed in because we've come up the hill, right? You guys were with me. You walked up the hill, right? We're singing the songs of ascent. Where does our help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so we're engaged in the temple. Now we're kneeling and bowing down, which physically is alerting us, hey, we're in the presence of God. I'm going to submit myself humbly. And then finally, notice what happens in verse 7. There's another transition from emotion to volition, the decisions I make. And then finally, he says at the end of verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's that engaging? Listen. It's engaging the mind, the understanding. Think. Emotion, will, understanding. You know, if you notice, every time you see an encounter with God in the Bible, the mind, the will, the emotions, they're all engaged. Moses before the burning bush. Mind, Will, emotions. Isaiah chapter 6. God shows up to Isaiah and and Isaiah says, emotions, I'm unclean. Get away from me, God. You're holy. I should not be in your presence. And God cleanses him. Mind, will, emotions. Mary, Gabriel shows up, right? She's frightened. I'd be frightened. Emotion. You're in the presence of something holy, but yet she ponders. She reflects. The will. She thinks, she hears, she listens. It engages the entire person. Go to to Revelation chapter 1. John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and this presence, this form shows up. And what does he do? It says in the Scripture, he fell at his feet as though dead. That's a lot of emotion, 
a lot of will, a lot of the mind. True worship engages the entire person. Now, notice in verse 8, he says, here's a warning, don't harden your heart. Now, when you see the word heart, heart doesn't refer to emotion in the scripture. Rather, it refers to the whole person. So in a sense, he's saying, don't shut yourself off. Don't be closed. Don't be a brick wall. Instead, be open to God. Now, what keeps us from being open to God? Well, what he's saying, I think if you connect it, now we're going to get into the context at the end of what those verses are talking about. But if you only engage the mind and never turn on the emotions, you're in danger of hardening the heart. Because see, the heart includes the emotions as well as the mind. And some of us are very analytical, and I love to just listen to great preaching. You know, I could come in late, but see, I'd be missing the engagement of worship. It's not about the mind. If the emotions and the will are not engaged, it's not worship. Or likewise, if you've been to a service, and usually they go on for about three, four hours, and they're engaging the emotions, and it's all emotion, and it's all about expression, but there's no engaging of the will, there's no engaging of the mind, it's not worship. Worship is only worship when it engages the entire person, because see, that person is captivated. And all of you know this, all of you have had moments of worship, moments when you ask the question, will you marry me? And she said, hopefully yes. Actually, if she said no, that'd be worship too. Mind, will, emotions, right? You'd be engaged. Or, or some news comes, you got the job, you got the, the promotion, or even when bad news comes, it's, it's cancer. It's, it's suffering. What's happening in those moments is the mind is engaged intellectually, the emotions are now stirred, and, and the volition, the decision, that's a picture of worship, that we are created to worship God. And when we worship God, we worship him with the totality of who we are. That's why when he shows up, what's going to happen? Every knee will bow, but every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not an intellectual moment. That's emotions, will, and intellect coming together. So what is worship? It engages the entire person, which means some of us need to grow in some areas. Some of us need to grow in volition, meaning obedience. It's not enough to worship God and then go off and just disobey him. That's not worship. That's not engaging the person. And likewise, if it's just emotional, like just excitement, but it never engages the mind, we never read scripture, we never study the word of God, it's not worship. It has to be the full picture. So what is worship? If we see what the the patterns are, the aspects of it, what, is, what does it look like to actually worship? And the word worship from the old English, the word, the actual English word is the word worth and shape, worth shape. That to worship is to be shaped by something of worth, to be shaped by something of value. And what the psalmist sees as ultimate value in this psalm is God. And you'll see it twice. Now, again, if you look at verses 1 and 2, he's engaging the motions. He's coming towards God with songs of praise. And then if you get down towards verse 3, he says, for. You see that word, for? For. Why am I engaging my emotions? Well, something's captivated this person and captivated this congregation. For the Lord is the great God a great king above all gods. And then he starts to go on. He's in some ways meditating. He's thinking, well, how great is God? 
And then he goes on and he says, in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry ground. Now, if you really believe that God is great, what would happen, what, how would that impact your life if you really believe that God had the mountains in his hands, the seas were not more powerful than he is, the mountaintops, the depths of the earth, none of that was any bigger than the palm of his hand. If you actually believe that and you thought out the implications of that, you wouldn't be afraid, you would trust him, and you would give him control. What's he doing? He's not just saying, hey, God's great, and he's moving on with his day. He's asking the question, if I really believe God is great, how would that change my life? That's where the emotions and the will and the mind are engaged with. If God is really who he says he is, how would that change me? And then notice later on, again, he does the same thing after verses 6 and 7, because he says in verses 6 and 7, O come, let us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Verse 7, why? Because he is our God. Not a God, he is my God, he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep in his hands. See, it's the truth of God. It's the truth of God, the excellencies of God, and they're thinking out the implications. If I really believe Jesus died for me, why am I looking for love? Why, if I really believe God is good, why am I trying to find goodness in the world instead of in God? If I really think God is in control, why do I keep trying to take control? He's thinking out the implications of his faith. And what he's doing with his mind, his will, his emotions, is he's ascribing ultimate value in the end to God. Hey, when you go and look at the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, first commandment, I know we all know it, right? Right, yeah, yeah, you just didn't want to say it. You didn't want to show off. You shall have no other, I, I know it because I wrote it down. You shall have no other gods before me. The first two commands, and really the first four commands, are focused on loving God. And see, if you get the first four, if you get God right, the last six take care of themselves. The first four focus on loving God. The last six focus on loving your neighbor. Which means when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, what he's saying to us is you'll either worship God or something else. But you can't worship nothing. Because if worship, remember worth-ship, it's ascribing to something worth and being shaped by the value of something. That's worship. Engaging mind, will, and emotions. If you're not worshiping God, he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me, meaning you will worship something. And if our heart is not set on God, we will find something of ultimate value to set our hearts on. And that's why he's saying in verse 3, he is the great God. He is the king above all gods. Not to say that other gods exist, but see, when our heart is captivated by something of value, it becomes a God in our life. Because it's not as if in Exodus it's saying, oh, there's all these choices of gods, just pick the right one. No, he's saying what happens is all of us make a God of something. And whatever you make a God of will affect your emotions, your will, and your mind. So think about this week. What affected your mind, your will, and your emotions? What captivated you? 
It could be a fear. It could be something beautiful. It could be something magnificent. But all of us are captivated by something. Harry Potter, right? You know that. So I read that years ago. I was actually a nanny. We were taking care of some little kids in Massachusetts. And this was the book, the first book when it first came out. I think it was like 2000, 1999, something like that. I remember reading that book, the only book I read. But in that uh, first book, and I think it's the first movie, uh, there's a mirror that Harry Potter looks into. And it's the mirror of Erised. And it's kind of a cool mirror because it's actually just the word desire backwards, Erised. And so he looks into the mirror of Erised, and he thinks it's a magical mirror because he looks into this mirror, and what he sees are his parents. And he's with them, and they're playing together, and they're talking. Now, Harry Potter had never met his parents because they died when he was just an infant. And so he looks in this mirror. He's amazed by what he sees. He's overwhelmed. He's emotional. He's like, this is the most amazing thing. So he gets his buddy, Ron Weasley. He says, Ron, you got to look in this mirror. You're going to see my parents. Well, when Ron gets to the mirror, he doesn't see Harry's parents. He sees himself. But he doesn't just see himself. He's the most popular. He's the most attractive. He's the best athlete in the entire school. What Ron sees is what Ron most desires. Because see, the mirror of Erised reflects back to you your greatest desire. It reflects back to you the thing that is most important to your life. And see, Scripture's saying the same thing. If you looked into that mirror, what would be reflected back? What is the most valuable thing in your life? Now, Dumbledore came to Harry later on. He says, Harry, don't look into that mirror because, see, when people look into the mirror, what, what happens is they begin to waste away because what they see can't give them life. And likewise, see, when we look to anything but God as our ultimate value, it cannot give us life. Instead, if God is not in his rightful place, everything else doesn't find its proper place in submission to God. What is worship? It's ascribing to God ultimate value. Hey, here's another picture of this. I think this is so important. We need to really sit in it for a minute. Uh, there's a story I saw in 2006. I just read it this week. Um, in 2006, actually, actually, the news came out in 2016, but the event happened in 2006. You're following me, right? You're with me. Okay, so on the coast of the Philippines, this, this fisherman in 2006, he was in a storm, and he let down his anchor, and his anchor uh, fell into something and got lodged underneath. And so he couldn't pull his anchor up after the storm. So he swam down, and he unlodged his anchor, and he had to bring up this object. So he tied these ropes around it, and it was this, this massive clam that was at the bottom of the ocean. He pulls it up. And so he put it in his boat, got off to the shore, he opened it up, and there was this object inside of this clam. Now, he had no idea what it was, never seen anything like it before, but he thought it was beautiful. And so he took it home and he put it under his bed. And there it was until, ready, 2016, 10 years, his little shack burns down. When it burns down, his aunt comes over and she sees this only thing that survived, this one object, and she goes, ah. It engages, what she sees is engaging her emotions. She's starting to engage her mind. She makes the decision to call a gemologist. Gemologist comes over and says, you're right. This is the largest pearl that's ever been discovered. 75 pounds. I mean, I think of pearls as something tiny. And its value is over $100 million. Now think about this. From 2006 to 2016, this poor fisherman 
had this lucky charm under his bed, but he had no idea the value. It was just a memento. It was sentimental. And I wonder how often God is like that lucky charm under the bed. We don't know his value. Now, when we recognize his value, what happens? When he found out he had $100 million, I mean, I don't know what that translates to Filipino money, but uh, it's a lot. And he realizes what he has. Suddenly, he knows in an instant, I am more stupid than I ever believed, but I am more wealthy than I could ever imagine. I've been sitting for 10 years struggling with life, and yet something of infinite worth, infinite value was under my bed. When he heard that news, it wasn't an intellectual decision. It wasn't, I'm going to believe in the value of this pearl. It was intellect affecting the will, the decision, affecting the emotion, which changes the life. You see what happens when we encounter God? Why did Zacchaeus start giving all his money away? Because what did Zacchaeus love? He loved money. That's why he had so much. He was somebody that extorted others to get more. But what did he do when he encountered Jesus? He finally was able to give away the one thing that he thought was most important in life because he had found the pearl of great price. He had found his ultimate value. And when you ascribe to God your ultimate value, all the other values in your life find their place behind God. That suddenly money's just money, and time is just time, and skills are just skills. But if I can use all of those things to honor what I love the most, that's worship. Which means our greatest problem right now, our greatest problem is not what we're doing wrong. It's how we're worshiping wrong. Because remember, if worship, all of us worship something, so something's captivating us, which means the decisions you're making that are ruining your life, ruining your marriage, that are hurting yourself intellectually or spiritually, emotionally, it's because you've set your heart on something of value. Every day you're getting up and you're worshiping it. Is it loving you back? Can it hug you? Can it speak to you? We set our heart on something and we wonder why we're angry. We're captivated. We set our hearts on something. We wonder why we are anxious. See, why do we lie? Why do we cheat? Let's go through the Ten Commandments. Go back down. Why do we not honor our parents? The idea is the reason we don't do these things is because we've set our heart on something other than God. Why do we lie? I know when I lie, usually I lie to get approval. That's been my story in life. Experienced rejection early on as a young kid, and that was a very difficult thing, both from my parents in some ways because of the struggles they were dealing with with friends. And so I said, you know what? They're not going to love me for who I am, so I'll just be whoever I want to be. And so I lived a life of lies all through my childhood. Now, why did I lie? Because what I worshipped was the acceptance of others. Now, I didn't realize this until I went to counseling many years later, okay? It's like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so afraid? Why am I afraid to get up in front of people, tell people that I'm really messed up? Well, because I was looking to the approval of others as my God. But you know what had to happen? My God, I had to die to myself. And you know what brought me to life? These words, you are my son in whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Those are the words of the Father to Jesus, but they're also the words of the Father to us when our life is found in Jesus. You are my daughter. 
You're my son and whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. If the father, our creator that holds the mountains in his hands and the seas said that to us, we wouldn't fear the approval of man, but we'd walk in loving confidence before others. Do you see that? See, when you value God and what he's done, it changes the life because it's engaged the mind, the will, the emotions, and out of that flows a life that reflects who God is. Do you see that picture, church? What are we setting our heart on? This whole psalm is focused on worship. When you get up on Monday morning, what's the constant theme? What's the storyline? What's the movie? Is it past failure? Is it future fear? Is it maybe an identity about who I am and what I've done? Do you see what we're doing? Every single day we're getting up and we're worshiping. We're setting our heart on some God. And it's only when we repent. What does repent mean? To turn. To turn from worshiping that which will not love us, will not give us life, and set our heart on the God who died for us, rose for us, and now intercedes for us. That leads to newness of life because the mind, the thoughts, the intellect, the emotion, the will, it's all captivated by God. Are you with me? Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we engage the emotions, the mind, the will? Well, let's jump back in. And the easiest thing to miss in this passage is a two-letter word, and it's the word us. Notice he's not just saying, let me. He's saying, let us. You cannot know God, this may be a little radical, by yourself. Just let it sink, sink in, right? It's like, that's not true. This psalm is saying there is a deficiency to the private relationship we have with God. See, as Americans, we value that. And I'm not suggesting you cannot know God privately. But we as Americans are independent Westerners, individualistic. What are we going to value? The individualistic relationship with God. It's me and my personal Jesus. That's not what he's talking about, is it? When he's engaging the mind, the will, and the emotions, you need help. Because some of us are cranky. All right. It's okay. Right? Some of us have a hard time thinking. We're real emotional, but we struggle thinking. You need someone to come alongside you who can speak into your life, can help you process, help you think. Some of us are all emotion. You need somebody to say, hey, calm down. Some of us need to get excited. What's going on in this passage is when you have a community of people around you, you have the fullness of Christ around you. That's why it's called the body of Christ. That in this room is the perfection of Jesus. Do you know that? If we took all the collective gifts and just the best ones, right, not the messed up side, and cleaned them off, you'd see Jesus. When you look at the church, what do you see? Really, really emotional churches? Really, really intellectual churches? Churches that get stuff done. What if they all came together as one? Why do we divide according to emotion and getting stuff done, the volition, the will, and then intellect? Because we want to gravitate to something that makes us comfortable. But that's not God. God is all of those things. It's all of those things that comes together, and then we see Jesus. Here's something that I think all of us know and why community and why this whole psalm is based in community is so important. There's been moments, and maybe in a marriage or a relationship or with a friend, 
Uh, You're with a friend, you've known that friend for, say, 50 years, and suddenly, for the first time, you're around your friend and her high school buddies. What do you see? You see someone who's a little bit different, don't you? You know, maybe you've been married for a long time, and, and your husband's now with his cousins. And you don't see him with his cousins often, but he grew up with his cousins, hung out with his cousins. whole life was with the cousins, right? What happens when the cousins show up? There's an aspect of his character you've seen, but you haven't seen it, right? You know what I mean? It's like, who are you? I've seen that person, but now when you're around these other people, it's as if you as the wife or husband or friend, you're getting more of that person because you're sharing them with someone else. Now, we're finite created beings, right? And yet you cannot know someone without a community of people around them. Because if I'm around intellectual people, I'm going to try to be intellectual. I'm around goofy people, I'm going to be goofy. And that's what happens to us, is to really get to know someone, you've got to know someone within the context of community. Well, if we're finite individuals, how much more true is that of God? Because here's the truth. My life experiences is only going to draw out me so much Jesus. I need you in my life and your experiences to show me other aspects of God. Let me share just quickly a story about this. I had a friend in college who grew up in Cambodia. Now, he's about 10 years older than me. And if you know your history, in the 60s, the 70s in Cambodia was a very dangerous time. It was under Pol Pot. Well, he was a part of those families that were uh, taken into the concentration camps. His father was murdered. They tried to starve his entire family to death. He'd, he'd tell me stories about reaching through a fence and, and pulling off these leaves and eating them. And here I am sitting with him, right? And I thought, you're not Jewish. That's how stupid I was. It's okay. Because <laughs> I thought, that doesn't happen anymore. Genocide isn't a, a real, it's not a thing today. And he was, he was telling me these stories and what happened to his family and how they walked hundreds of miles and escaped and how they got out of captivity. And see, when we prayed together, he believed in the power of God in a way I never understood and never would understand. You know why? Because see, in my life, I could trust God, but I always had my parents. I could trust God, but we always had money. I could trust God, but I always had people around me that spoke wisdom, and they had money, and they had homes, and they had resources. I've never been at a point where I had to eat a leaf off a tree. What happens to a person that truly trusts the power of God in their life is there was a richness to the power of God I'd never understood. There was a trust that he had in God providing that blew me absolutely away. And I tell you, I miss that God. I miss the God that my friend drew out in my life because he showed me God from an angle. I understood. You know, I understood God's powerful, but I hadn't seen It hadn't engaged my emotions. It hadn't engaged my will. What happens when we come together is we see God from different angles, almost like a diamond. When you look at a diamond, you see a facet, and it's beautiful, but you turn it and you see another facet. What happens when all of our experiences come together in the worship of God is you actually see God. Do you realize how important community is and how often people will say, I don't need the church to know God? Think about that. I can exhaust God just by myself. If we can't exhaust a person, how can we exhaust the character 
of God. To truly know God, we have to know God. Listen, you've got to know him in community, which means you've got to be humble. Now, second, there are rhythms to worship. There's rhythms. Again, if you notice in, in, in survey the entire psalm, it starts with the expression of emotions. And they're singing, and we may call that adoration. It's a call to worship. It's looking at the character of God and telling God about who he is. That's the first step. But then second, in verses 6 and 7, right? Bow down, kneeling. It's humility. It's confession. It's reflection. Then finally, in verse 7, he says, listen. Hear his voice. Then a response, don't harden your heart, which means examine your life. What is that pattern? Adoration, confession, listen, respond. See, churches over uh, thousands of years have used that as a liturgy inside the church. Now, a liturgy just means a form. We have an informal liturgy, which means we don't let you know what we're doing. Go to other churches, right? You got call to worship, you got confession, you got petition. Well, that's what it is. When we gather in worship, we gather in adoration. When Stephen began the, the service, it's amazing grace. It was a loud, upbeat, up-tempo, praise-focused song. But then we began to sing the blood of the Lamb that washes away our sins. Reflection, confession, need. God, who are you? I believe in God our Father. Believe in Christ the Son. Believe in the Holy Spirit. You go from adoration to confession. This is who you are. And then what needs to happen? Listen to his voice. And then how am I going to respond? Am I going to respond to God, not based on what Jason said, but what Scripture says? Am I going to allow him to speak to me? Am I going to walk out of here and not change my volition? I'm going to go do whatever I want to do that I'm going to claim to worship you? I'm not going to allow God to engage my emotions. No, there's a rhythm to worship. It's adoration and confession, reflection, listening, and then response. And that's the same thing we have to do in the home. We take what we experience really in the gathering, and we take that into our private home, and we adore, we confess, we listen, we respond. You see the rhythms to worship. And then finally, and here's the most important piece, there's the rest of worship. When you get down to the end, you notice those terms. He's, he's naming some specific events and specific places. We don't have time right now just to jump into the full context, but go read Exodus chapter 17, and that's what he's describing. He's describing an event down in, in Exodus chapter 17 where the nation of Israel, they're in the wilderness, right? And they're wandering. It's a place of dryness, and everything they have, they have to carry. Every morning, getting up, putting all your stuff on your back, closing up your teepee or whatever that thing was, and, and then you're going to the next place. Every single day, you had to pick up everything you owned and travel with you, and your hope was, one day, I'll get to a place of rest. One day, I'll get to the promised land. That's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Go and read Hebrews chapter 4. If we had time, I'd love to jump into that, but go read Hebrews chapter 4 because Hebrews 4 is a meditation on, sorry, Psalm 95. And it says that there is a greater rest for us. That the writer of Hebrews, what he's doing, it's kind of neat. He's putting us, modern people or people that lived during the time where Hebrews was written, and he's saying there's a greater rest that we need to enter into. 
not just the physical rest. Remember, the Israelites were going to the promised land. And because they didn't listen to God, and what did they do? They worshiped the gods of the nations. They're like, look at the gods of Egypt. Look at the gods of the Syrians. Look at the gods of Madison Avenue. Look at the gods of Wall Street. Look at the gods of my neighbors. They were captivated by the gods of the nations, and therefore they would not humble their hearts, engage their mind, will, and emotions to God. They wouldn't give themselves to God. And because of that, they never experienced God's rest. See, what does that mean for us? You know, we started this service, and I prayed. Uh, there's a, a quote from Jesus on the cross where he says, it's done, it's finished. Now, what's finished? The work is finished. What happened on the seventh day? God rested from his, his work, what he did. Well, realize often what's driving our work is something we worship. Think about the work that we do. Are we doing it just for the glory of God, for the praise of his goodness? No, we're doing it for approval. Often we're doing it for the success. We're doing it for the resources, the money. And, and those things are good things in their prop, proper position under the authority of God, but we're not resting. We're doing it so that someone would say, hey, there you go. You're somebody worth something. We're pursuing maybe external beauty. It could be wealth and finance. It could be a, the acclaim of others, having our name and that title next to our name. We're worshiping it. But here's the reality. None of those things, when you fail them, will ever love you back but only remind you how much you failed. Realize that everything else that we worship in this life, whether it's money, failed relationships, the approval of others, when you fail those things, they will not die for you. They will not speak a better word. They will not speak a word of grace when you look at your failure. They will not exalt you as you exalt them. All they will do will be a law on your heart saying you do not measure up. You do not measure up. You do not measure up. What's the gospel? The work is complete. You are my son in whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. When we believe in Jesus, we have the identity. We have the work already complete. We have the relationship to know God. Everything is done when we put our faith in Christ. The rest of the Christian life is living out of our rest. Worship is a declaration, hear this, of freedom. I'm not living for these desires anymore. I'm not living for these things. I'm not going to be afraid of what other people say. Not because I don't care about people, but I care so much more about what God wants to do in my life. I'm not going back to Egypt. I'm not going to be enslaved. When we worship, what we do is we declare our freedom. Christ and Christ alone. That's where my hope is found. He is my strength. He is my song. He is my foundation. When we truly worship God, we declare to the world, Christ has set me free. Do you receive that? The work's done. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that on the cross, you said that it's, it's finished. Even though we did not know what we did in crucifying you, Lord, and it's not just in a historical context, but our sin has nailed you to the cross and our impatience with you, Father, our lack of reverence towards you, our compartmentalized life. I don't need the body of Christ. I don't need others in my life. I can just study on my own. Father, our hard hearts, not to engage in community, not to engage the emotions, 
And not to be honest that my faith has nothing to do with the way I'm living my life right now. It's not engaging the will. How can we call this, Father? Come in your presence week after week and call it worship. And yet, Lord, your grace is magnificent. You don't cast us out. But day by day, you pour out more grace so that we may see our own sin. And Father, come to you and fall at your feet and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us. And thank you that by faith in Jesus Christ, the work is done and we are accepted as the children of God, complete in Christ. Lord, help us to walk and freedom this week. And may our worship be an expression. We've been set free. I don't need these things anymore. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship.